Father God, we, uh, Lord, we pray that that would be the cry of our hearts to you, not just today, but every day, that we would realize that ultimately the greatest, the highest, the deepest, the most fulfilling experience that we can have is simply to open ourselves completely to you. And while the flesh cries out for us to hold on to parts and to pockets of our heart, to cherish sin, to cherish selfishness and and our own way, God, you have called out to us and you have let us know that you have something so much greater that is found when we simply surrender to you. And so God, help us to surrender to you both in this moment and every moment. And we pray these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We simply have one verse today that's listed in the bulletin that we will... Now, that's our starting point. We'll um, look at lots of different references, but... Today's message really comes out of a question um, from my own heart. This sermon's entitled, Little by Little, Spiritual Growth in the Age of Google, because we are used to the instantaneous. Some of us are, many of us, are old enough to remember when we'd ask a question, and some adult figure, whether it was a parent or teacher or whoever, would say, look it up in a dictionary. Go check the encyclopedia. And I'm like, just admit you don't know the answer. But, you know, they thought, acted like they were building character and told us to go look it up or whatever. But, you know, you don't really have to do that now. I mean, you know, if, you, if the parents want to answer, they can say, hold on, let me think about that. And they can Google it. But most of the time, the kids know to Google it. We know that we can just have instant access to information, instant access to almost anything we think of. Quite frankly, I use Google all the time. When I'm preparing sermons, I'll be like, oh, there's that really good verse, and I remember like two words out of it. Where is that? Now, I could keep thinking about that for another hour, and it might eventually come to me, or I can Google those two words, and it's probably going to come up. We are used to things being easy and instant. In fact, we're impatient now with the things that are, that are supposed to be time savers even. You know, we're, we're uh, frustrated with our washer and dryer because they take too long when we could be out there scrubbing with a washboard and hanging them on a line. Or, you know, we're frustrated with our microwave that used to be this miracle instantaneous invention to cook things so fast and, and now we've added convection to it and it's still not fast enough for us, and we, we just want things instantly, and we know that we serve a God who is all-powerful, who could uh, instantly do everything, because he did once upon a time. He spoke this universe into creation. We know God can do that, and so we say, why doesn't he? <laughs> Lord, you want us to be saved. God, you want us to grow. You want us to be mature. Why is it that God doesn't just zap us and make us some kind of super Christian all of a sudden the moment we get saved? I mean, I would like, wouldn't y'all like that? Wouldn't it be great if you were just such a super Christian that you weren't even hardly tempted to do anything bad, that you just automatically did, said, and knew the right stuff? I mean, 
Sounds fantastic to me, right? So why didn't God think about this? Hey, I got a great idea for you, Lord. Well, he says there's a reason. He teaches in Scripture that there is a specific reason. God could snap his fingers. He could zap us. But for our own good, he does not. And so this morning, I want us to think really just about three. Uh, I, I didn't, I'm not going on a five-point sermon like last week, okay? So we might get out of here on time for Sunday school. Sunday school teachers, you're welcome. But, you know, we're just going to look at three reasons why um, this process of spiritual growth is a process, why it takes time instead of being instant. So let's turn to our... Um, starting verse today, which is uh, Deuteronomy 7.22. And if you would please stand as we read this verse. Now, a little, a little background here. God is talking to the Israelite people about, you remember he's promised them the promised, given them the holy land, the promised land, the land of milk and honey. He said, you're going to get it. And so he's talking to them about how that is going to work as they get this promised land. Because they might have thought it was going to be instant, but it wasn't either. Deuteronomy 7, verse 22. The Lord your God will drive those nations out ahead of you little by little. You will not clear them away all at once. Otherwise, the wild animals would multiply too quickly for you. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, ask that you would teach us, that you would show us, that you'd help us to understand and get on board with your process of changing us and making us more like Jesus little by little each day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Why is spiritual growth a process? Number one, instant growth would leave devastating gaps in our life. Instant growth would leave devastating gaps in our life. Think about this verse right here. The people would probably love for God, who did many, 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 many miracles and proved he could do whatever he wanted. They probably had even asked him. He was probably saying these things in response to something they'd already asked or something they were at least wondering. And they probably said, God, you've said that these Canaanite people are evil, evil, evil. You want them all gone. Why don't you just wipe them out completely in a heartbeat and we'll catch up and, and spread out and get to the cities eventually. But God said, if I do that, which I certainly could, everything would go wild. The land of milk and honey would not be so, I mean, maybe the honey would still be there, but the milk would go sour because the cows would be gone. They'd be devoured by beasts. Nothing would, nothing would be there. Remember he promised them in the Old Testament. He said, you're going to go into cities that you didn't build, and you're going to go pick grapes out of vineyards that you didn't plant. I mean, he promised them that they were going to go in and, and get all this stuff, but you know what? God said, if I just wiped out these evil people that, that I'm going to ha have you wipe out. But if I just did that all at once, you would inherit nothing but ruin. The land would become a barren wilderness before you ever got there and took over and integrated into this society. So there would be some huge gaps, some huge mess-ups. Anybody who knows anything about military strategy will tell you that it's one thing to take a hill, it's another thing to hold the hill, and then it's another thing to govern that hill. 
If you can look at the history of our country and its military engagements over the last 50 years, you'll see that you know, as, as much blood and effort is spent on taking the hill, it's often the keeping the hill and the governing the hill that is the thing we struggle with in the conflicts that we have around this world. We can go in quick and fast and do something, but the reality is we all need to consolidate in our lives. We need to learn to heal from our wounds, from the battles that we go through. You want to know what happens when you try to skip this process, when you try to, like, I'm going to instantly become this super Christian. Just look at what happens to any time any sort of celebrity becomes a Christian. I'm not talking about a celebrity who's been a Christian for many years. I'm not talking about a Tim Tebow type of guy who was raised up as a Christian and, and knows God and you know, he's, he's just living out what he's been taught and trained and, and focused on for years and years and years. And he's not perfect, and we might wake up tomorrow and read that Tim Tebow did something really bad. But, you know, he does a pretty good job as an ordinary human being who happens to get extraordinary exposure and focus put on him. But he's got a solid foundation of years and years of spiritual growth. But oftentimes you'll see a celebrity, whether Hollywood or sports or whatever, and they become a Christian. And we're all like, oh, yeah. Because we got this dumb thing where we think God needs celebrities somehow. God doesn't need celebrities at all. In fact, he said, uh, it's kind of one of the more insulting things Paul said to the church. He said, not many of you were wise. Not many of you were strong. Not many of you were successful. In other words, the fact that you ordinary folks are the ones that God uses to, miracul to do miraculous stuff is the reason he gets the glory and credit, okay? So God's plan, unlike ours, to recruit superstar celebrities and, and let them spread the word, God's plan is to use ordinary, flawed, messed up people like you and me. But what we do is we take an ordinary, flawed human being who ha just happens to be a celebrity, and all of a sudden we put them speaking um, to everybody about Christianity, and they're getting all the hard questions, and they're getting so much pressure, and almost inevitably they'll crumble. Either they'll say, oh, I tried that Christian thing and it didn't really work for me, or, or you know, they'll fade into the background, or something bad will happen. Because we weren't made to go be instant super Christians overnight. But somehow we think because someone is a famous celebrity type person that, oh yeah, we can put them out there and they'll be the super Christian for everybody. It just doesn't work that way. God specifically warns us against this type of thing in Scripture. Do you know that? In uh, the book of 1 Timothy uh, 3.6, Paul warns Timothy as he sent Timothy out to, to look over this church and this area of churches and to select elders, and he specifically warns them. He says, don't get a new believer to be an elder because they're not ready for that yet. They come under that pressure. And man, are we so bad about doing this? When someone shows up and they're excited and they're a warm body, hey, you'd make a great Sunday school teacher. You've only been here three months. But you know what? You're willing and you, you're too dumb to say no at this point. <laughs> you know. So we're going to hand you the quarterly literature and you're going to teach three-year-olds for the next 36 years or what, you know, 
whatever the case may be. We have this thing of shoving people, like get them, you know, before they get burnt out, before they wise up, let's, let's give them a job real quick. And God says, let people develop. We all need time to grow and mature. Should we be challenging each other? Yes. But the challenge should be to go from this level to this level, not way up here all of a sudden in an instant. So spiritual growth is important because there would be these devastating gaps in our life if we all of a sudden grew, but the maturity didn't come with it. And that maturity only comes over time. Secondly, God made spiritual growth to be a natural process, just like other natural processes in our life. Over and over, God describes spiritual growth and relates it to other natural processes that we all know about in our normal everyday life. Peter, um, I think it's 1 Peter 2.2, he says, As newborn babes desire the milk, the pure milk of the word. Peter says, just like babies, you know, if they don't feed, I mean, think about in his day, there wasn't any formula around. What happens when a baby doesn't take to the nursing like it should? It's a really dangerous and difficult situation, especially back then in a day where we didn't have formula. They might try goat's milk or something else, but he says, just like if you want a baby to grow and, and, and to be healthy, it really needs to go for that milk. And we get concerned when a baby doesn't go for that milk. It says, you and I need to grow, and to grow, we need nourishment. And so we want to get larger and grow little by little, just like babies. Now, we say when we see children that we haven't seen for a while, well, you just grew a foot in a day, you know, or I can't believe how you sprouted up. And their parents don't quite see it because they've watched them day by day by day. And that's how growth is. It occurs over time. Not only does Peter talk about the milk of the word that we're all supposed to crave like newborn babes, but then the author of Hebrews goes on and takes it up another notch, and he says, okay, uh, some of you are a little bit old to be doing that, you know? Uh, you, you need to get away from your mom, you need to get off the milk, and you need to get on the meat. You know, we all kind of, every one of us have an idea. Now, it's none of our business, but yet we have an idea in our minds how long that whole breastfeeding thing should go on. And when it goes on longer than we think it should, we think, oh, that's kind of strange, you know. Well, here, he's saying, spiritually speaking, some of you people are still on the milk when you ought to be on the meat. You ought to be moving on to more uh, meaty things, to greater maturity. In other words, as important as John 3.16 is, and we all need to learn that we can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we can be saved, we need to move on to learning some other things about how to grow as parents, as workers, uh, spiritual gifts. There are meatier things, and at some point in our life, we have to grow into maturity. And so the author of Hebrews is uses that idea of being weaned off the milk and going to the meat. And there are many other times in Scripture there are processes mentioned, natural processes of growth. Remember the parable of the sower. 
We talk about the seed and how it goes out and the soil and how it grows. Paul used a similar analogy when he says, I planted, Apollos watered, and, and then God gave the increase. We all understand about planting and watering and growing. Paul also used uh, the idea of a building. He, he talked about building a lot. Uh, Paul was a tent maker, so he made some really quick buildings, but he knew about what a normal house looked like. And he always talked about, first, we've got the foundation. And then we build upon that. You know, I, I don't know anything about construction, but I was down in Haiti when we made a little block house, you know. And, and one thing I do know is that we didn't start with the roof. We didn't even start with those block walls. We had to get the foundation going first, and then we went from there. All of these processes we understand in life is God's way of saying, I created this universe to work in the ways of process. And spiritual growth is not some crazy disconnected thing from all the rest of my creation. But just like I made growth in other parts of this world to be a process, spiritual growth is that same way. Finally, <clears throat> and I think most important, why spiritual growth is a process is because Jesus' growth was. Our growth is a process because Jesus' growth was a process. Now, hang tight with me here. This is kind of deep. This is kind of mind-blowing when we think about it because, you know, we understand that true theology, not what the heretics say, but biblical orthodox theology says God was man, I mean Jesus, both God and man. Now, liberals will tend to take away the God part and say, now, he was just a good man. But unfortunately, sometimes as conservatives, we take away the man part, and we just say, well, God, yeah, Jesus, the Son of God, divine, eternal from all creation, and we forget about his humanity. We forget about the radical nature of the incarnation, that God becoming man, what all that involved. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul was talking to these Philippians about the kind of attitude they should have, the kind of outlook they should have on life. And, and as he was doing that, he told them, he said, your attitude ought to be just like Jesus' attitude was. And then he explained exactly what that attitude was. Sorry, my sword drills, Bible drills a little rusty here. Philippians 2, listen to this. Begin reading in verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Now, when this says he gave up his divine privileges, the Greek word behind that literally means he emptied himself. In other words, God said... 
I'm going to become human. And I am going to take all of the God privileges I have, and I'm going to set them all aside. I'm going to dump them all out for these 33 years that I'm here in the incarnation. And I'm going to live my life without any of those special privileges that I had, any of those powers, any of those abilities. I'm setting them aside. And I'm going to live in the way of dependence upon the Spirit of God, just as I'm calling all of those who will follow after me to live. And God did that. There's a favorite verse of mine, Luke 2.52. I use this verse all the time when I first meet a new child or when I'm baptizing a child. Luke 2.52 says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And I pray those things for that child in front of me, whether they're a newborn or, or they're now being like God, help this child to grow in wisdom. Help them to grow physically in stature. Help them to grow uh, in favor with man. That is socially, help them to grow that way. And most of all, God, help them to grow in favor with you. But here's the thing. If Jesus had to grow... That means there was a time when he was less of those things. You cannot grow without being less. Now, we kind of get the physical part, kind of, because we, yes, oh, he was a little baby, and then he became a man. We still don't get that completely because we sing the little Lord Jesus, no crying he made. Come on. That was somebody's dream. That was somebody who wrote that song. They had to have been awake all the last night of broken sleep, and they're like, oh, Jesus had to not cry. No, I guarantee Jesus cried. Jesus made dirty diapers. Jesus did all the things that children do. He had to grow physically. But let's think about these other ways because they, they get more radical when you really understand the implications here. Jesus grew in wisdom. Guess what? When Jesus was a five-year-old, he didn't have all the wisdom that he had when he was 30 years old and beginning his ministry. He had to grow in that wisdom. You wonder, well, how did his brothers and sisters not understand? How did they not believe at first? Why did it take them a long time to get that he was the Messiah? Guess what? He grew in wisdom. That means Jesus, like every other four-year-old, probably told some really dumb jokes, thinking they were really funny, and all the, <laughs> the rest of the family, like, <laughs> you know, humored him laughing, or, oh, not again, these dumb four-year-old jokes. Jesus had to grow in wisdom. In favor with man. He had to grow socially. It's like children can be awkward. Jesus had to grow and learn how to get along with other people. But the most mind-blowing part is he had to grow in favor with God. I don't even know how I get that. The Son of God, who's eternally connected with God, with perfect unity... We think about the separation that occurred on the cross when the Bible says he who knew no sin became sin and we know that he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because there was this disconnect between Jesus 
and the Father at that point because Jesus became sin. We think about that, but we don't think about the fact that for his entire life, from the moment that Jesus was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, that this eternal relationship they had always had, that there was a reboot. And that Jesus had to grow in favor with his Father. He had to learn how to get closer to God. Now that sounds really radical, but it's the radical truth. And it makes a big difference for us, because if I read scripture about Jesus, and he, you know, he was slapped or mocked, and he didn't slap back or mock back or whatever, well, I'm like, of course, he's Jesus. But if I get the fact that he is a man, that he's a human being, that's tempted and tried just like me, that all those special God powers and abilities he had, that he set them aside, and that he simply followed the leading of the Spirit in his life, just like you and me are supposed to, when I get that and understand that, then it really helps me, quite frankly, to believe more that Jesus, number one, understands me, and number two, that Jesus can help me through anything I face because he's been there. Jesus didn't fake become a man. He didn't just look like or act like he became a human being. He really experienced what all of us do. And so if our goal, as Scripture tells us, is to be like Jesus, and he grew over time, part of a process, then you and I have to grow over time as a process also. Jesus even, the Bible says, has to learn obedience. Now that's a mind-blowing verse in Hebrews chapter 5. Does it mean that he disobeyed? No, it doesn't. In that case, the author of Hebrews has already cleared that up in chapter 4 and said he's sinless and perfect. He never failed. But the point that he's making there is there's one thing technically to say, I'm going to obey. But there's a whole different experience when the temptation and the trial comes and you step forward in faith and you trust God and you walk in it. You can say you learned obedience because you matured and grew and developed. You actually experienced what walking in obedience actually means when you're tested and tried and everything in the world and your flesh says, do the wrong thing, and you do the right thing because you trust Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews, God is telling us there. This is how you learn obedience, is to actually do it. We think of learning obedience as you mess up and you get spanked and then you learn obedience. Well, that's kind of, we all have to do that, but <laughs> you're raising kids, we got to punish in some way, we got to correct. But real obedience is when a person chooses to obey and actually does it. Then they have learned obedience in the way that Jesus learned obedience. Listen to Hebrews, this last verse, and then we're going to conclude. It's also uh, from this section of 
of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5, verse 7 through 9. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. And even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest. And he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible tells us that he agonized over the cross so deeply that he sweated blood. He called out to the Father, is there any other way? But he said, God, if there's not another way, not my will, but your will. And God says that it was that obedience and submission to him as a father. And he followed through and went to the cross. That made him the mature and complete savior for us. Not only as son of God who was able to take on our punishment in a way that the rest of humanity couldn't, but as a perfect human being who was completely surrendered to the father he was then able to be the sacrifice for our sins. So what do we do with all this? Well, in the words of, of uh, Philadelphia 76ers basketball fans, trust the process. It's been their motto uh, for the last several years. They had a guy come, came in, I think his name was Sam Hinkey, and he did something that really made a lot of people mad, but he said, we're going to get good by being really bad. We're going to tank we're going to be as bad as we can be so that we get as many number one top lottery picks as we can get. And eventually, when we get all those top lottery picks, we'll get the best players coming out of college, and we'll become a great NBA team. And uh, he did this. It was very highly controversial. In fact, he didn't get to see the end of his process because he got the boot. But today... The 76ers, depending on who you talk to, are probably the second or third best team in the Eastern Conference because of all these amazing players that they got during the process. And uh, so all his fans, his, the ones who weren't the detractors calling him names, calling for him to be fired, they all continue to say, trust the process. And as, as they're rubbing it in people's faces, you fired him, but look how good we are now because of what he did. Well, his process was a gamble, and it happened to kind of sort of mostly work out. But God's got a process that's a sure thing, a process of spiritual growth. And the next couple of weeks, we're going to look deeper into that process and how it actually works, how we actually learn and grow over time and become more like Jesus. And you're like, really? Two more weeks? Yes, I did spend this entire Sunday simply, hopefully convincing you 
that God has a process and we need to trust it. There are no shortcuts. There are no quick fixes to spiritual growth. We've got to tap into God's process. We've got to trust him, cooperate with him, walk with him, and God will grow us to be like Jesus. And that's where we all want to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you and Lord, we admit, God, we're, we're so far from where we should be. We, we have failings and flaws and hiccups and heartaches. And God, we, we're just people with issues, quite frankly. We're people with problems. And while our flesh cries out for an easy fix, you love us too much to give us an easy fix. I pray that we would have our hearts set on cooperating with you and growing with you to be more like Jesus. Just like he grew, let us grow. It's our prayer, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we've come